Hello and welcome to ZeroNet 50. I'm Jennifer Deloney and with me as always is Joel Stronberg. Hi, Joel. Hi, Jennifer. So let's jump right in uh, and why don't you tell me a little bit about what's going on on the Hill. I understand there's a lot there and it's and it's really being driven by the House these days. It is. Um, and uh, yes to both those things. Um, there is a lot going on and it is being driven by the House. Uh, for obvious reasons, I mean, the, the, the Democrats can actually get something through the House. Um, although what's happening now, too, is that almost everything that, that the Democrats are able to pass on the House side um, is going to be sent over to a Senate black hole. Um, mm -hmm. Majority Leader uh, McConnell I mean, has indicated, and, and, and somewhat proudly, actually, um, that I mean, he's gonna, I mean, he is going to stop just about everything the Democrats uh, want to see, even debated. Um, and he and he's like I said he's standing proud uh, on that for in some sense that's it's to be expected I mean there the it really shows the difference between the the two parties um, but it also uh, it's unfortunate from in from the standpoint that I mean the Senate is becoming um, neutralized if you will uh, in this kind of a setting and it's mm. not good it's not good for the nation I mean it's right. um, somehow they've got to break through the uh, the, the logjam and see some bipartisan uh, legislation going through. Yeah. There is some, um, but not a lot. On the House side, however, uh, there's just a, there's a huge amount of activity. The appropriations uh, bills are being prepared now, and shortly uh, there'll be what's called a mini-bus, um, which is the House's version of what the appropriations uh, for the coming fiscal year will look like. Um, but it's not just about money. It's about functions as well. So one of the things that, for example, is the, the, the committee um, responsible for uh, taxation um, is talking, Ways and Means is talking about uh, possibilities for extending the renewable energy tax credits for another couple of years. Um, in some cases, they're actually talking about uh, going back two years and pulling those credits that never got um, extended under previous legislation, extended now. Biomass is an example of that. Right, um, right. They're also doing things like, um, they're, they're doing very many forward-looking things. I and mean, they're, they're arguing about uh, programs at the Department of Energy, for example, that uh, have been zeroed um, out. One of the fights, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on um, your perspective, is that uh, the White House is actually uh, fighting about the Congress putting back money in for ARPA-E, and ARPA-E is the uh, is the civilian version um, of the of the military uh, research programs, and mm -hmm. it's uh, for energy. And it's uh, I mean they do all the advanced research work, uh, new materials, new systems. Uh, the, it's money out to the universities. I mean, th these programs actually return a huge amount of money uh, in terms of new products and new opportunities uh, in, into the private market. Why the White House is fighting that is anybody's guess, right. um, but they are. And, and this is also something that it really pulls together the, the Democrats and the Republicans on this. One of the things that we're not sure of at this point is when McConnell says he's gonna be kind of the, the black hole that's just gonna consume things, um, whether he'll discriminate between something that the White House might accept um, or he's just going to do it for everything. In the past uh, couple of months, what he's, what the Senate's been doing or what McConnell has been doing is saying, look, anything that the White House is going to veto, I'm not going to talk about. I'm not going to even put it on the floor yeah. for a discussion. 
the other thing that's going on is, I mean, as you may imagine, is that they're, they're having um, a series. Of, there must have been 12 or 13 committee hearings in various committees in the last few weeks on climate change, um, on, on, on raising the issue in the, in the sense that um, they're talking about, you know, what, is, what does the science community have to say about this? Mm -hmm. um, they're picking up options. They had the FERC commission as well um, before a committee this week. And, um, you know, in its regulatory uh, matters, the House was concerned that climate change is not being addressed in this. So they, they called the FERC commissioners, you know, onto the carpet and said, we want an explanation of what it is that you think about um, when you start talking about the regulation of, of utilities and, and what have you. And they want to see, they want to see studies being done. And if they're not being done, they're going to keep calling them up to the hill. So that's a, mm -hmm. I mean, that's a really good thing. Um, yeah. There are a couple of bills now on uh, putting, uh, putting riders on the appropriations legislation uh, that will prevent the government, uh, in this case, the Trump administration, um, from using any federal funds uh, in the furtherance of pulling out of the Paris Agreement. Uh, there, there are a couple of bills in the Senate as well. Whether they get there or not is another issue. But the fact of the matter is that it's, it's, they're using these appropriation bills to really um, make the case, uh, principally because the appropriation bills have to be debated. A, a bill standing on its own about whether or not the U.S. should be in or out of the Paris Accord may or may not get a hearing. Um, everything that's done on the appropriations is going to get a hearing um, because no budget no appropriations, no government. Uh, although there's still a threat out there, I think, and a very credible one, as far as whether or not Trump will actually uh, try to use the, the, the appropriation bills before the uh, September 30th deadline um, to put forward his wall and what have you, and whether he would actually go ahead and cause another government shutdown. If he does, um, this is going to be a major government shutdown, and yeah. and obviously the Republicans are going to be worried about the election coming up and his forcing that. Um, so we're 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 seeing a lot of activity. We're also seeing a lot of oversight activity, not just for FERC, um, but they're calling uh, the Secretary of Interior and uh, Secretary of Energy Perry and saying, "Well, what are you guys doing about um, climate change?" And they had a, a go round with Perry last week about um, he's looking for ways once again to keep coal and nuclear plants that I mean, they're just not economic um, on the on the line again. And uh, he's using the tact of uh, national security. So that's I mean, that's happening and that's an ongoing fight. Um, what's also being heated up is the science advisory board on EPA. Um, actually, you have to excuse me. I really think this is great that before Pruitt left, he actually fired most of the science community um, that was on this science advisory board that, that spoke about the climate research and the need to do something about it. He packed the, the advisory board with, um, with, with what he saw, thought were right-thinking scientists. Well, as it turns out, um, last week at their meeting, they asked um, the Wheeler to come in and explain what was going on. After he left, um, they as a committee basically released a statement saying that, you know, we think that, that EPA is not doing its mission. Um, huh. And I, I mean, talk about being bit by your own friends. Right. Um, but, but it was so obvious um, that, that, that these guys just felt compelled to do that. And I think that that's 
hopefully that's going to be something that, that, that we'll see more of. I mean, they push it to the point where, where it's just beyond belief. And, right. and that, I mean, that I think goes favorably to most people. I mean, you can be conservative and still say, you know, I mean, science has value here and you can't just right. simply ignore it. Um, mm-hmm. The one thing that I think that uh, they're also been dealing on uh, on disaster assistance bills, uh, which obviously also brings up the topic of climate change and a lot more freely than it had been uh, in, in in the past. Um, but they're working backwards on that. It almost seems like they're either dealing with the disasters that happened, um, and in this case, the disaster bill that was just signed actually was still funding 2017 disasters. Um, and 2018 as well, um, but it, there's nothing going forward as far as well. What what happened about the disasters that may yet be coming? Um, so, but they're dealing with that, and then they're also dealing with um, more proactive stuff, things that the Democrats would like to see in the future. Um, but you know, there there are things happening now. Climate change, as we've discussed before, is happening, I and mean, this isn't something that you know will be showing up. Uh, two weeks from now at 5.30. It, mm-hmm. It's there. And and something has to be done about adapting to it, about be, being resilient. And I've seen no committee hearing um, on what it is that the federal government should be doing to help cities, states, communities um, avoid a disaster happening. Um, and I think that this is something that... that I don't know how you get that discussion made, you know, introduced, but it needs to be introduced because I think that if, if it's not, too much planning gets too far down the road. And um, if what gets left behind is really hard to get caught back up again. Um, so, I mean, I think that this is said, so I think that's the weakness of this. Um, but what's happening generally is that the Democrats are, in fact, establishing their baseline um, mm-hmm. for the 2020 elections. They know that that they're not going to get anything through this year. Um, but what they're doing is they're, they're, they're using this time to educate not only the members of Congress, but I think their constituents um, on the issues involved with climate. And this is something that, that is going to take off. Uh, just one more thing. Uh, as an example of Republicans actually thinking about some of these things, um, you know, I've discussed before that in the 2018 midterms, um, the algae bloom in Florida um, was a real problem. And that uh, now Senator Scott, who was then governor, um, was, I mean, it was being called, um, he was called a red bloom. Uh, he, he, his front name was, was, they decided to call him red bloom. And, and his position on this was um, that as governor, well, you know, this isn't really a problem. Well, now there's been, there've been two bills introduced by Republicans with Democratic support um, that actually is asking for $6 million, it's not a lot, but $6 million in research funds um, for the state of Florida to look at algae blooms. Um, Senator Scott is, uh, this is Red, this is Red Bloom Scott, um, right. is now also even changing his position. He's made a couple of statements on the Senate floor already about the fact that, well, in fact, climate change is happening. And not only is it happening, but it's, its consequences, the algae blooms, um, are killing the economy down in Florida. Tourists don't come down in that, and it's also killing the fishing community. So again, this is probably a great opportunity to be proactive about, you know, defense setting, about 
about being being um, focused enough to stop or to prepare for what's coming to avoid what's coming. Um, yeah. and, but again, that's these, these are minor minor uh, amendments to, to legislation for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's well, my story. <laughs> well, the the whole concept of resilience. You now, when you talk about FERC and resilience, you know they've been working hard in terms of building what they call the resilient grid for a long time. But I think there's a bigger conversation when it comes to the topic of resilience. Really, what we have to call the resilience economy. And you know, the reality is, like you just said, we're we're seeing the com- communication about climate change shift away from complete denial to a more general acceptance of the science demonstrating that an alarmingly fast change is happening with a continued desire to discredit the notion that humans and their release of harmful gases into the atmosphere have caused the advanced change in climate systems. And as the global community is recognizing that, we're feeling the effects of climate change now, and we're going to see the effects in the years to come even as we work to stave off the most disastrous possible future scenarios, we're also recognizing that we're woefully underprepared for greater incidences of disasters stemming from floods, hurricanes, and even polar vortices. So, um, you know, we have to look at, you know, what is the world doing in, in this context? And in its annual report released in the first week of June, which covers 2018, UN climate change said that alongside new scientific evidence and the increasingly observable signs of climate change, 2018 showed that the world is now ready and determined to act. So we're, we are really at this turning point. And we're not just talking about acting on low emissions strategies. UN climate change executive secretary Patricia Espinoza said that The report covers the achievements of the UN climate change process specific to the Convention of Parties, the Kyoto Protocol, Paris Agreement. Uh, For example, last December, the parties agreed to the majority of guidelines to put the Paris Agreement into action through the Katowice Climate Package. And that package provides the operational framework for climate action and guidance on tracking evaluating efforts at the national and international levels, but it also outlines how countries will report on their NDCs and includes efforts to build resilience to the inevitable impacts of climate change. The report highlights the reality that even if greenhouse gas emissions were halted completely, past emissions would continue to change the climate, not as severely as with new emissions, but the effects would continue to be felt. And we, we just can't say it's something that's along in the future. Like you said, it's not going to happen five minutes. It's, it's happening now. And limiting risks because of that requires adaptation and mitigation support from specific segments, investments, policy, innovation, and ultimately human beings being able to change their behavior. And the UN climate change process helps countries to address climate risks through what they called national adaptation plans. And they outline how a nation and its communities can become resilient to climate change impacts. There are now 
or I should say there are only 13 national adaptation plans submitted for public view. Uh, and that's in a portal that's coordinated by the UN. Anybody can go in and look at them. And they've been submitted gradually over the last three and a half years. And the most recent one was submitted in March from Ethiopia. And it's worth looking at these plans. Check out Ethiopia's plan. It's an easy read, but very informative. And uh, we want to see what the approach to you know, this idea of resilience is. In Ethiopia's plan, for example, it says that the anticipated changes in temperature and rainfall as a result of climate change are expected to put direct and indirect impacts on all elements of human well-being. That's all elements. Like, there's just not going to be one little segment that we have to look at. It's everything. It says that the country's limited ability to adapt to climate risk, uncertainty, change over time, has made the country and its people really vulnerable. And climate-sensitive development, those sectors outlined in the plan include, for example, agriculture, livestock, infrastructure, health, water, energy resources, forestry, and, and livelihoods in general. You know, and in, in the US, we can see these pockets where we're addressing infrastructure, but we're not addressing everything across the board like this plan does. Um, the challenges that are outlined in the report to agriculture alone, like crops and livestock, are considerable. They include, for example, droughts and floods, uh, shifts in rainfall and temperature, extreme events like heat waves and storms, and the outcomes are disastrous. They have, you know, crop plant maturity is shortening, they have extensive crop diseases, and low productivity of soils and animals, and the list just goes on and on. But specific factors make Ethiopians vulnerable to climate and disaster risks. For example, inadequate provision of veterinary service, shortage of drinking water, you know, shortage of pasture lands because it's all dried out. And that list goes on and on. And the plan says that different technologies for adaptation can be identified, such as uh, providing for agriculture inputs for like fertilizers and pesticides and improved varieties of seeds, things that, you know, maybe we account for here in the U.S., but they just can't yet in Ethiopia. But, you know, if you step back and you look at Ethiopia's goal, part of it is to build the adaptation strategy into the country's existing policies for climate change that they've already built. And... Their current goal, goal right now is for a carbon neutral status by 2030. So basically in 10 years. Uh, and the, they've set aside a budget of that's equivalent to 150 billion US dollars for this strategy. And it, it, it essentially is for low emissions economic growth. But the national adaptation plan approach from the perspective of the parties to the Paris Agreement right now is mostly focused on developing countries as you know, they can, they're concerned that these really? regions, they are highly susceptible to the effects of climate change. Adaptation well, well, and, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to ask, I mean, um, is there a funding problem in this? I mean, where do, where do these less developed countries um, get the funds that are needed to, to do this? 
sure they get the money. Yeah, so there is a, a fund that was put together a while ago um, as, as a part of COP. And it's, you know, it's, it's put together and supported by the more industrialized countries of mm. the world. But, you know, we all always have to step back, back and say, yeah, people have said they would put the money in, but like the U.S., did they end up putting the money in? That's worth investigating in and of itself. But mm -hmm. countries like Ethiopia can't rely on that right now. They have to find the funding for themselves, which they, they basically don't always have. But it's a very important question where that money comes from. But, um, you know, in terms of developed countries, we're, you know, we're looking at this adaptation, you know, we're looking at it from a different perspective. It's being incorporated under differently styled plans and systems. You know, they aren't called national adaptation plans. Uh, we're not going to hear anytime soon of a national adaptation plan for the U.S., but right. we can step back and stop and ask ourselves, you know, what would that look like? And uh, the U.S. is coming at resilience in a more piecemeal approach like it has for the entire green economy. Mm -hmm. It comes up from subnationals, states, city governments, grassroots, local initiatives. Uh, for example, Colorado has been building its climate plan for more than a decade, but in 2015, it updated its original plan with a quote state level policies and strategies to mitigate and adapt building that concept into their original green economy plan in well, general oh, yeah go ahead oh, I was say, well in fact um i mean there's been a lot on on the news lately um because of the disasters uh about cities for example new orleans uh, i mean the, their their river wall i mean which is supposed to be you know, stomping floodwaters um, is becoming useless because it's just simply not tall enough. Um, mm -hmm. And they're doing the same thing in, in Mississippi River um, as far as the Army Engineers, uh, Corps of Engineers. Uh, I mean, their levees are not doing what they were designed to do, uh, and not because of the design, but because of the, the, um, the intensity uh, of the river rises. And so I think that, I mean, this is obviously something that needs to be um, dealt with, and I think that some of that's going to be driven just by, um, you know, what you're saying, the river wall is not being tall enough. The other thing that I've seen, too, is that um, fishing industries, I've written before about the Pacific, uh, and the Pacific Ocean, where uh, uh, crabbers uh, in, on the Pacific side have been uh, having trouble because the, 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 the rising temperature of the ocean is causing uh, algae blooms, which means that they can't they can't get the crabs during that period. So their fishing uh, uh, time is cut by, the season is cut by three weeks. But now what's happening on the Atlantic coast is that fish populations are moving north and um, it's wreaking havoc, not so much with the, fish, uh, with the fishing industry, but the reason it's re re uh, raising havoc is because there are agreements in place um, as to who's fishing what territories mm -hmm. that's now becoming really complicated because the fish that was in the territory is, is either moved out and then is being backfilled by another fish population that's not controlled by any of these uh, interstate agreements. And mm. it's uh, the impact on the economy is happening in ways I think that 
people don't really understand. And certainly at the federal level, unless these experiences are being brought up um, specifically, then I think what happens is we run the risk once more of having a federal policy just so far behind the curve that, um, that it leaves people to have to deal with these things on their own. Yeah, absolutely. It, and uh, the resilience economy itself has been growing slowly over the last decade as regions see the devastating effects of on our systems like the ones you're talking about. Um, but, you know, cities are, are trying really hard. 24 U.S. cities have been accepted into the Rockefeller Foundation's 100 Resilient Cities Initiative. And the top four largest U.S. cities are included in that list, New York, L.A., Chicago, and Houston. And of the top 10 cities, Dallas and San Jose are also part of the uh, Resilient Cities list. Four of our largest cities, Phoenix, Philadelphia, San Antonio, and San Diego, are not on the list. Really? Um, yeah, which is really fascinating. But um, the 100 Resilient Cities Initiative looks at its program like this. It says, building a city's resilience to climate change effects requires looking at the city as a whole and understanding the systems that are foundational to the city's makeup. What parts rely on each other and what is at risk if a pillar of the city's structure deteriorates? If we can see those structures and bolster them for potential disasters, if we see that fishing is you know, a foundational structure of our community and that it's potentially affected by climate change, you know, we have to figure out ahead of time how to bolster that, that segment. But the city's initiative is a great start. Um, there are, unfortunately though, there are a little over 300 cities in the U.S. with a population of at least 100,000 and there are about 4,000 incorporated places in the U.S. with a population of more than 10,000. So with those stats in perspective, 24 cities seems like a nominal start in my mind, but it, it's still something. And, you know, we have to ask ourselves when we're thinking about the resilient cities approach, wouldn't we be well served as a nation to also look at the nation as a whole, understand the systems that are foundational to its makeup as part of a comprehensive federally backed adaptation plan. What parts rely on each other and what is at risk if a pillar of the country's structure deteriorates? It's, I mean, it, it would be a big task, but wouldn't it be good? Oh yeah, it would be excellent. I mean, and, yeah. and I think at this point, um, the only thing at the federal level that actually touches upon this um, in more or less a, a deliberate or maybe the word is conscious way, um, our infrastructure bills. And mm -hmm. um, although I've never seen, I mean, I've, not, I've, I've never seen a bill that has taken that kind of holistic approach that you're, that you're suggesting where, right. I mean, whatever's happening in Los Angeles actually makes a difference to Seattle as well right. and bringing these things together. Um, but the other, the problem comes in that even, even the infrastructure bill, which um, earlier this year was considered uh, a possible uh, opportunity for bipartisan support, it's just evolved. I mean, the, the, uh, the White House is basically um, kind of trashed that notion. So it's, it's unlikely to happen. Um, I think in the future, what's going to happen is that more and more of the infrastructure bills um, are going to have to pay attention to these things. But again, the, there's, there's this kind of 
the, the politics of it is working on a, a much different time frame than Mother Nature is, and that mm -hmm. uh, that's going to end up being a problem. Um, I know that in San Francisco, in San Diego's case, uh, just to kind of uh, echo what you're saying, they've actually um, the mayor there, Garcetti, um, has just announced at least within the last three or four weeks um, a city Green New Deal uh, that right. really kind of looks at all of that. Uh, although he's got some political problems coming coming uh, on that as well. The, the reason I was looking at I was doing work on uh, how the how labor unions are responding to the Green New Deal. Um, and they're not responding to it very well. And um, Garcetti's plan in San Diego kind of was, was being painted with that same brush. But the fact is that, I mean, here's a mayor that, I mean, he knows that this is going to be a problem. Um, and the city now shows kind of an understanding and a commitment um, to looking holistically at what the problem is that the federal government just does not. Um, and I think that we could even say that not only should should the federal government be looking on a national, in a national sense on this, uh, but they should be encouraging regional um, approaches on these things as well. Obviously, I mean, floodwaters don't, don't abide by state um, boundary lines and either does pollution. And so that, that we, we need to kind of build this up in a way that, um, I mean, goes from the local to the regional to the federal, uh, mm -hmm. but in a coordinated way. And that's, and therein lies the problem these days. Right. Well, there are inklings toward this type of thinking building in the coming bid for the presidency. Joe Biden in early June released his climate action platform, which has as one of its pillars, quote, building a stronger, more resilient nation. And huh. the plan calls for immediate investments, you know, of course, from day one of his presidency, uh, investments in buildings, water, transportation, uh, and energy infrastructure to ensure they can withstand the impacts of climate change. The approach includes developing what you mentioned, regional climate resilience plans. And that's certainly a good step. It's not that's a it. national adaptation plan, uh, but it would certainly be closer. I think it's an excellent step. And um, I, don't, don't hold me to this, but I, I'm not aware um, that that approach is being uh, reflected in any of the other candidates' plans, I mean, whether it's Inslee's or, or Hickenlooper's. Um, so maybe what will happen during the, the, the coming debate season um, is that Biden can kind of pass that along to the other candidates and hopefully be able to get them to adopt that within their individual plans. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I think it's come to the time where I get to find out what's on your desk coming up for the week. Uh, well, the, uh, two things, actually. One is um, I'm working on a, on a piece now, um, again, directed at the Green New Deal, calling both into question um, and suggesting that the, the progressives that have been using the Green New Deal as their um, major focal point need to actually start providing more details, because what's happening is that um, the Republicans are still controlling the dialogue and, and they're, they're using the 30 second soundbite sort of thing that, you know, there'll be no more meat, there'll be no more airplanes, what have you. Right. The only way that that kind of conversation is going to stop um, is if the Green New Deal actually gets to be fleshed out more. And um, my feeling at this point is that they should adopt Inslee's plan, um, which does have a lot of the details for their plan. Um, otherwise, 
Um, the prediction now is that they, they won't have anything before January 2020, and that's too late. The other thing that I'm, I'm going to be writing on um, is something that I mean, if you'd asked me a week ago, I wouldn't have even thought of it, is that mm -hmm. the military, I just read an article that the military, um, the, the United States military uh, is responsible for um, greenhouse emissions that are comparable to a small nation. Um, wow. uh, and in addition to that, there are, um, there are waste sites, nuclear waste sites that, the, that have been on military installations that nobody's bothering to clean up. And um, there is evidence now that, that these things are migrating into, uh, into waters and earth and, and land. So I was going to write about that as well, um, in addition to the fact that, you know, I'm now putting out uh, a twice weekly newsletter on what's happening in Washington called um, Capital, uh, Capital uh, what is it called? It's a climate politics. Um, okay. And so I'm hoping that people click into that um, as well. So uh, those are the two things and um, subject to change. You know me well enough to know that sometimes I get pulled off by distracted yeah, right. <laughs> yes indeed so the newsletters themselves you are posting those on civil notion i am and they're under the tab climate politics uh people okay. just have to click onto that and uh, they'll see them all right well that's wonderful well i look forward to seeing uh, all the new things coming next week and thanks to our listeners for joining us uh thank you joel for your insights thank you, today Jennifer. yes um and our listeners can tweet questions or comments to hashtag zero net 50 and have a great day.